0: Thanks, you guys. You can be seated. Uh, if you're new to Sunridge, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just before I even get started, I just want to say that uh, we have a Welcome to Sunridge brunch immediately following the service. If you're new to Sunridge, you have questions or, um, you know, you just want to find out more about what our church is about, uh, I'd love to have you come to that. It's in room 107 right across the hallway here. And uh, it's a chance for us to get to know you and for uh, you to get to know us a little better. And uh, it only lasts about an hour. There's childcare, and it's free food. So, I mean, you put all that together, it's going to be awesome. So why wouldn't you come? You guys all right? I'm helping you out here. So, guys were whooping up other things. You don't whoop up the brunch, whatever. Um, man, believe it or not, this week I was on social media, and I was like, I saw something that really disturbed me. Imagine that, right? But it's probably not what you think. It was a recipe. It was a recipe for tofu, sausage, and gravy. Come on, man, what is that? And the picture, it looked beautiful. It really looked like sausage and gravy, but there's no way you're going to convince me that tofu, sausage, and gravy is good. You know, um, if you're a tofu person, I'm sorry. I I don't mean to offend you, but... um, Come on, man. Um, and it got me thinking about all these food substitutes. And I, and you know, tofu sausage and gravy might be one of the worst ever. I don't know. Some, someone's going to come up after this message and say, "Man, I've had it. I'll make it for you. It's so awesome." Don't even try. Don't even bother. Okay. <laughs> but there's all these food substitutes now. You know, there's the ubiquitous uh, soy meat in its many versions. You know, and. Uh, Supposed to be better for you, I don't know. And then there's this thing with turkey. You know, turkey's everything, except turkey anymore. Kind of with the comedian Mitch Hedberg, it's like turkey must have an insecurity complex. You know, it's like just be yourself, turkey. You're good all on your own. You don't have to be turkey ham or turkey pastrami. You're cool, turkey. Just be turkey. Um, then there's Velveeta. I just want to say, Velveeta is not cheese, people. It's a substitute. Where I come from, Velveeta is catfish bait. And the only thing that, like, is uh, that Velveeta might be in, and I'm just guessing, I'm showing my ignorance here, but Cheese Whiz. Cheese Whiz is awesome. How many people are fans of Cheese Whiz? Yeah, there's no cheese in Cheese Whiz. But whatever it is, it's good, right? You know, it's good. Okay, be honest. How many of you just squirt it in your mouth sometimes? Don't even put it on the crackers. Yeah, me too. But make sure you lick it off real good because, you know, you don't want that thing to be stuck, that plug to be stuck in there for the next person. And then maybe the, the biggest scam of all, if I haven't offended you yet, I'm about to, okay? So the biggest scam of all is kale chips. They're not potato chips. Kale is not food. (laughs) And I just want to say that, you know, I will never wake up watching a ball game with kale crumbs on my chest like I do (laughs) with Ruffles. I fell asleep during the University of Miami game against Florida State yesterday. They were behind. And uh, I woke up with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, and they were ahead, and I had Ruffles potato chip crumbs on my chest. They were not kale crumbs. (laughs) Why do we accept substitutes? Sometimes because they're cheaper. Sometimes we're convinced that they're really not inferior. But I'm with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. There ain't nothing like the real thing baby, right? The reason why I bring that up is if you're just joining us, we're in this series uh, that we're calling Enjoy. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is the church he planted. You can read the story in Acts 16. And Paul, as was his manner, would write these letters back to the churches. And this particular letter to the believers at Philippi, he's writing from prison. And he's talking all about joy. It's the thing that jumps off every page, every sentence in Paul's letter. It's like how to enjoy life. What what brings us true joy and happiness? So here's our main thought Today, as we look at Philippians 3, 1 through 15, when it comes to enjoying life, there is no substitute for knowing Jesus. When it comes to enjoying life, there is no substitute for knowing Jesus. Now, I know that that sounds really religious, but, and you might well, what is that all about? Just hang with me, okay? And I'm going to explain it. Paul starts this section off, and like any letter that you or I would write, his letters have. Sections where he deals with certain thoughts. And the section we're looking at today is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 15. Here's how he starts. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul starts off this section once again talking about joy, and he says to rejoice in the Lord. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean that we can't find enjoyment in all the good things in life, like going on vacation and having money in the bank and uh, getting the promotion and having successes. But he, you know, those aren't in the end fully satisfying. And they're meant to be enjoyed even through the lens of in the Lord. If we want to enjoy life the way God has designed us to do so, then we're. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. And you could probably say, well, Britt, you have no idea what my life is like. It's impossible. The the fact that Paul is saying this and encouraging somebody to do it means that it is possible. That we can rejoice in the Lord. Now, another thing I want to point out about this is notice that you'll never find Paul saying the opposite it's like he'll, he'll, he never says, you know, rejoice in something else. But he also never says to do these things in the Lord, the opposite of rejoicing. In the Lord, be a negative Nancy. Now, I'm sorry if you're a Nancy. How about Bob the bummer? I, I don't, you know what I'm talking about. So Paul never writes. You'll never find in the Bible, in the Lord, be filled with self-pity. And mix in plenty of despondency. And make sure you top it off with some pessimism. In other words, in the Lord, be completely miserable and make others so. The Bible never says to do that. And he says, the way he presents it, he says, like like this is a repetitive message from Paul. And he says, I'm not embarrassed at doing this. There's no problem at all for me to say it again and again to you. I love that. In fact, he says, This is a safeguard to you, which is a way of saying, it's like this is something that will keep you from tripping. It's like guardrail to hold you up. And maybe the reason we stumble is we're rejoicing in things that are not the Lord. You know, for Paul, this is much more than a trite religious saying. This is central to all of his books and all of his writings, and it's certainly central to this book because Paul is constantly bringing joy and the good news of Jesus Christ together. Just think about it. If you're a Christian, you know that God gave his son on your behalf. He loved you so much. He was so desperate for you to be connected with him. That he sent a son who went willingly. That's good news, people. And whatever's happening in our lives today, we know that God has an incredible love for us. There's no substitute for that. Now typically when we think about substituting you know, something for God, we think about the destructive choices that we might have. So it always leads back to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? That these are the substitutes. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is in your notes. He says, "'Be especially aware of religious substitutes.'" Be especially aware of religious substitutes. In verse 2, he says, "'Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh.'" Who in the world is he talking about here? And, you know, when I, when I read this, I thought, could I ever get away with that? Could I get up and call some of you dogs, evil, and mutilators of the flesh? I don't think I could. But the Apostle Paul got away with it. Because who, who is he talking about? He's talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers. This is in your notes. <clears throat> I'm going to read this, the definition. Er, Judaizers were early Christians who insisted that converts must believe in Jesus and, the key point here is and, continue to follow the traditional Hebrew customs in order to be accepted by God. You remember that Christianity was birthed out of the traditional Hebrew religion. And so it's only natural that... We bring the past forward with us into the future. And sometimes that's good. Our experiences and everything, but in this case, it's really bad. But she's trying to mix a religion of works with a religion of grace. Jesus said he came and brought a new covenant. See, the old covenant, the old deal between man and God was Do the right thing, keep the list, and when you don't, make sure you offer a sacrifice so that you can be square. But when Christ gave his life on the cross, that's entirely new. new. Not a little bit new, not we brought some of the old with us. It's entirely new. That our relationship with God is based entirely on what we do with Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross, not on the things that we do. The term Judaizer comes from Paul talking about Peter, who was one of the disciples who came out of the Jewish tradition. And in Galatians 2.14, Paul says to them, how, do, how is it that you are imposing on the Gentiles that they have to follow Jewish customs? That is, why are you imposing Judaizing on them. And this is a transitional time, as I mentioned, between the old and the new. And so the church, which came out of that Hebrew religion, they had a lot of debates early on about what does it mean to be a Christian and to be a Christ follower? And is it Jesus and something or not? And Paul's insistence here is that it's Jesus plus nothing. That's why he's so fired up. He's so fired up because the Judaizers were tracking Paul. Not only were they like teaching different things, but they would actually follow him into these communities. And where a church was planted, they would quickly come in behind him and start teaching another version of the gospel that said, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need all these customs and regulations that are part of our tradition." You know, Paul saw that new converts are especially vulnerable to false teaching. You know, when you, you think about if you became a Christian when you were an adult, it's like how thrilled you were and how open you were to what God was doing. And you're very susceptible at that point, very naive. Your heart is open, but the truth isn't fully grounded in you. So Paul is incensed about this. And I think he's also... In, in a sense because it strikes at the essence of Christianity to say that it's Jesus plus something else. Just the math doesn't work. If you have a math, a spiritual math, that says it's Jesus plus something equals uh, salvation, like there is no blank there. It's Jesus plus nothing. You're complete in him. But if soon as somebody starts chipping away at that, chipping away at... Salvation is by faith, through the grace of God. When that starts to be eroded, that's striking at the essence of Christianity. Not just in in its theological perspective, but in our own hearts. When we start to migrate in our minds or start to move toward, yeah, it's Jesus plus these works, that puts a heavy burden on you. And pretty soon, your Christianity is just another list of rules and regulations that you're trying to find, that you're trying to fulfill. Now, if you've live you lived in Southern California your whole life, you probably aren't even aware, but like where I became a Christian uh, in Miami and growing up and, and going to a Bible college in Missouri, it's like I came out of a fundamentalist background and there was like so many rules. It was just against the rules to do everything that was fun. And they just made a rule for everything. We couldn't play cards. You uh, couldn't have long hair if you were a guy. Girls couldn't wear uh, pants because that was man's apparel. And that's just crazy stuff. But it was part of them. What they taught us is like more rules of what it means to be a Christian. Thank God that you don't have to experience that if you never went through it. It's hard to shake some of that. And to... The way Paul is so, has his hackles up so much about this that he says that these people that are doing this, he calls them dogs, evil, and mutilators of the flesh, which is a reference of the, them teaching you have to be circumcised also, which is a Jewish custom. You know, when he's calling them dogs, it's not like, you know, the fluffy little puppy that you love. This is. Dogs then were vermin. So, I mean, today it'd be more, if I was Paul, I would say, you know, watch out for those cats. (laughs) Because it gets the point across better, doesn't it? (laughs) Watch out for those dogs and to call them evil. Like, remember that the Hebrew at that time, they're very devout in in the rules that they follow. And they felt morally superior to their culture around them, which they were. But he's saying, no, you're evil. And then he's making a, a reference to circumcision and just calling it a pure mut- mutilation of the flesh. He goes on to, to point out the inadequacy of following the law as, the, as these Judaizers were teaching in verse 3. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And he's just like taking in another click forward when he, he's saying it's we it's those of us who believe solely in the grace of god and not these other rules we are the true circumcision we are the true that's uh, he's saying we're the true believers and we don't glory in, in our list of rules and regulations and our traditions we glory in christ and in verse 4, he goes on to say, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Like, if anybody wants to match credentials, I'm willing to step up and do so. Verse, he continues, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul is saying, my religious credentials and pedigree are outstanding. I'm I'm from the nation of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised the eighth day, which says that his parents were also devout followers. My entire family into into history in perpetuity has been religious. I got all of that lined up. And, And to that culture at that time, it's like that meant that you were someone to be honored, to be respected. You were set up for success in life. Paul's saying, I came from the right family. I, have, uh, I came from the right neighborhood. I had the best education. I've performed in the areas in which I'm supposed to perform. I have a great resume and references. I've hit all the marks of a top-shelf religious person and leader. And he says, yet, if you want to match that, I'll match with you. But you should beware of how those things can become a substitute for something else. He goes on to say that religious accomplishments and rules are inadequate substitutes compared to knowing Christ. That's what we just sang about. I want to know you. Somehow, we have the capacity as human beings to allow our religious accomplishments, some legalistic markers or rules to become a substitute for truly pursuing Christ. And Paul says they're inadequate. Verse 7, for whatever was to my profit, all those things that I just listed that I'm awesome at, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. That's an that's a, um, accounting term. And he's saying, like, if you put it in a ledger, all the good stuff I've done, and knowing Christ... They don't even match up. If you're you're adding up your spiritual life and you have a list of things that you're really proud of religiously, they, they don't compare to knowing Jesus. I consider those a loss compared to surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. And he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. This is... This is a very cleaned-up word. Your, maybe your Bible says manure or dung. That's a more close translation. But the actual word is scubalon, and it's, it's a slang word for man- manure or dung. So, yeah, it's that word, that earthy word that he's using to describe the good things his accomplishments, I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his su- in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead." Paul says that there's all these good things in my life, but they really don't add up and they're really of no value because they can they end up becoming a substitute for what we really need to know Christ. There's no question that these things shaped Paul, that they were part of. His ministry, I mean, there's no doubt that his education contributed to to the place that God put him and his ability to debate and to teach. They're all part of, like, who he is as anything that we've had in our past. But he warns against these becoming mere substitutes for knowing Christ. So why, why so much of this letter on this one thing of religious substitutes? So what? The so what here is that all of us have our substitutes. We all have substitutes. These early Christians, they were steeped in their religious traditions and rules and regulations and legalism. And those became the things that they pursued more than simply knowing Christ. So if we all have them, what are yours? Well, you say, well, I don't know what they are, so let, let me help you. Not that I know what yours are, but like, let me give you a frame of reference to think about them. First of all, substitutes, uh, they're usually good things that are valued. Again, we talked about or referred to, you know, yeah, yeah, there's God, and then I'm more, you know, I'm, instead of God, I'm sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is much more sneaky and affects Christians far more than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They're usually good things, like our theology. That's a good thing, or our denomination. Those those are good things, but they can get in the way of what God wants us to know. Let me ask you something. Are your beliefs exactly the same as they were 20 years ago? Everything that you believe about Jesus and the Bible—are you still in that same exact place? Well, you might be the most dialed person that ever lived, or you might be like—you might be stuck, because God breaks through sometimes and changes. So sometimes, like knowledge, can become a substitute for Jesus. Well, you know. I know a lot about the Bible. You should know a lot about the Bible. But we know the Bible so that we can know Christ. Is that where your knowledge is taking you? Remember, Paul said knowledge can puff up. Knowledge is good, but it can take us in the wrong direction and become a substitute for knowing Christ. It could be your, your Christianly success or your respectability. If we're not careful. Christianity can become a, like a, a pathway to lead to more respectability. It could be your good family. You have an awesome family, and your kids are all squared away, and that's a good thing. But it, is that the thing you rest on that that's when you point to your spiritual life? Is that it? Are you knowing Christ more deeply? You see, all of these things, all the substitutes, the religious substitutes, allow us to feel good about ourselves and and sometimes superior. And so then it becomes a substitute for pursuing Christ. And it can also cause you to live in the past. There's the thing that I did and the truth that I learned. And the, the way I raise my children. And it, it becomes the marker for us that's evidence of where we are with God. And these are all, again, it's like that, those aren't bad things. They're good things. But Paul is saying that all these religious things and accomplishments, they're, they're inadequate in compared to knowing Christ. And we all have them. Paul goes on to say that knowing Christ is a lifelong pursuit. It's not something that just happened back here. He says, I haven't already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not dialed either, Paul is saying. I'm not perfect. This is a struggle that every, every devout Christian has. If you're far from God, you likely struggle with your worthiness. But if if you're allowing religious substitutes to take place of pursuing Christ, you might struggle with pride, not not unworthiness. He says, I don't have, I haven't taken, you know, I don't have all this dialed. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And Paul's, words here. There's like a forward leaning. There's a focus on the future. You know, a rearview mirror in a car is a very effective tool that, that helps you drive more safely. But you can get distracted looking in a rearview mirror so that you miss what's in front of you. How many of you like, have had someone maybe tailgating you or you're kind of wondering what's going on behind you and you're like, you're looking in your rearview mirror too much so that something happened in front of you that you should have seen, and maybe, maybe you didn't see it in time, or maybe just in time. You're like, whoa, i got to start paying attention to what's in front of me. Sometimes our religious accomplishments can be the thing that we just keep looking at in the rearview mirror. And I love how Paul ends this passage. He says, all of you, in verse 15 All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. The things that I've just been telling you, if you're mature, you'll agree with me. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. I love that because it seems like it was written just for teaching pastors and those that would debate them constantly. You know, the thing that I just said that I taught so eloquently on, that you met me out in the hallway and you're debating me on, God will show you one day. I know I can't claim that, but that was free. Listen, joy is not in your awesome past. Joy is not in your awesome past. If, if all your I was awesome stories are three years, five years, ten years ago, like when people are talking about what God is doing in their lives, and your story, you've got to blow the dust off of it, maybe you're living in the past. You're like the spiritual version of Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. Thank you for getting it. This is a younger crowd. The first server is like, Uncle Rico, is that one of Britt's relatives or something? You guys get me. Thank you. If you're not with me, remember when Uncle Rico is like reminiscing about how awesome he was in football in high school? And he said, you know, if the coach would have just put me in, we could have won state. And I'd be sitting in a hot tub with my soulmate right now. We got Uncle Rico Christian stories. (laughs) Joy is not in your awesome past. And you know what? Joy is not found in your awful past either. You know, you're not those old choices, you're not those decisions, those failures. Your awesome and awful past are both behind you. Your awesome and awful past are both behind you. If either one of these things are are like directing you right now, your awesome past or your awful past, you're either paralyzed by pride or by shame. And it's funny how these past things, whether awful or awesome, how they keep creeping up into our present. You guys know what an earworm is? I I had to look it up because I heard someone say it. An earworm is when, like, the lyrics to a song or a part of a song get stuck in your head. I mean, this happens. Yeah. You know what? It happens from our worship services. A song always gets stuck in my head. I never know which one it is, but I'll wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning tomorrow, and that song will be in my head, which makes me really spiritual that I'm thinking about worship songs in my earworm, but it's like it gets stuck in your head, and you know, there there are spiritual earworms. It's a voice that keeps talking to you, and that voice is either saying, it's telling you about your awful past and the mistakes that you made, or it's telling you how awesome you were at one time. And it's that voice that just keeps talking to you. What would today look like? if you bagged up all your awesome past or your awful past and you took it to the dumpster and you threw it in there, which is where Paul says it belongs. Because what is before you is knowing Christ. These things, either failures or successes, they are contributing to who you are today But you cannot live there. The joy is found in pursuing Christ wholeheartedly today. Your future is not your past. If you continue to allow the awesome past and the awful past to speak to you and to dictate your spiritual wellness today, you will will live with blame. You'll live with shame. Or cynicism. Or pride. Or self-righteousness. And you will just be stuck in a rut. A rut of either shame or pride. Because everything about you is in the past, not in the future. And Paul said all these things, I'm going to put them in the past so that I can wholeheartedly pursue knowing Christ more today. Now, I know that some of you, you hear that like, um, I should read my Bible more and pray more, like uh, knowing Christ. Maybe you should. Likely, you should. So should your pastor. But it's, it's much more than that. See, if, if we're pursuing Christ today, knowing him, then that's part of everything that's going on in our lives. That situation that you find yourself in, in a, in a relationship where there's tension, and you just want to sign the dotted line and get rid of it, or you want to push that person away, maybe that is the answer. I can't say but how are you knowing Christ more in that situation? What, what is God doing in your heart in the middle of that relational conflict? What about your situation at work, where you're, you, you know, you're facing tension there. Maybe you're in conflict with an office, co- a coworker or something. Maybe it's in your church. Like how, how can? jesus be part of that how can what is god doing in your heart to reveal more what about the situation that happened to you this this tragedy prognosis it's like and you want it gone it's like don't we all but like in the moment what what might god be doing in your heart that you would know him more what about the cultural events of our day the things that are on blast, on TV, radio, in your social media, it's like all the things that are going on, is it just like we're just going to line up in different categories and, and yell tweets back and forth at each other? Or is God in that? Is what, what is God doing today? What in the people that you run with, the circle you're in, it's like how is that experience and the conversation that's taking place today, can I know God more through that? What is God doing in me? Maybe you've created like this safe and cozy place for yourself in the church, and like, you know, you're surrounded by wonderful fellowship and other Christians, and, and it feels really good. And yet you're constantly bumping up to these situations where you read about the way Jesus lived, and the commission that he gave his followers. And it makes you really fearful. It makes your hand sweat to think about, like, being a witness or talking to somebody about God at work or your neighbor, inviting them to church. It's like, well, could God be in that? Could, is there something for you to know about Christ in working through that situation? What about your blessed life? We, we tend to think about, like, wrestling with God in the middle of our, you know, our stressful times, our challenges, like, oh, Jesus, I need you now, you know. Come through for me. You know, what, what if you're living a blessed life, you got more money in the bank than you know what to do with, your family's healthy, everybody's good. What is that about? Is there something that you could know? A way that God is revealing himself more? Do you know Jesus Christ more deeply in that blessed time? Paul says that this is the secret to joy. If you're a Christian, if, if you're going to boil your Christianity down to a set of rules and lists and regulations and create a, a, a list of people who fulfill that and people that don't, it's like you're going to end up in this dry spiritless, lifeless place where your Christianity just ends up being like a place to make you feel good about yourself and to feel good that you're not somebody else. The pursuit of those really good religious rules and regulations or spiritual habits, it's all good. But it is not a substitute for asking yourself daily and in each situation, how is it that I can know Christ in this situation? If you're, if you're a non-religious person and you showed up for uh, reasons other than, you know, to make your mom happy or because someone offered to buy you lunch because you'd go to church, if, you're, if you walked in these doors because you're unhappy with something out there, it's like you know that there's something more, I would ask you to consider that that's something more is that God has made people and he's made us to live, he's designed us to live in a certain way and we're wired to be satisfied deeply by certain things and it's not out there. It's what God does in us. And so don't give up on us. Like keep exploring faith and and, you know, engage with your friends. And if you're kind of like a returning religious person, you know, it's like you probably, probably the reason you left the church or walked away from God is because it got Drysville, because, like, something happened, and it's like, you know, you just become, you became unhappy and dissatisfied with the list and the regulations. Like, this is just too much expectation. And so you walked away, and something's happened to make you come back and explore I think that you, whatever, you, whatever situation you're coming from, Christian, on fire or dead and dry, non-religious, returning, you know, like not sure, giving it a try, the answer to finding real joy in your life is to know Christ, to know him as Savior, and to know him more deeply, even in the midst of the situations that you find yourself in. Don't, don't settle for a lesser Jesus and thus a lesser life because the joy that you're looking for is found in the wholehearted pursuit of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.